Hi, how are you? Glad to be here. Welcome here on a Mother's Day weekend. It's always good to be together uh, with the family of God. And if you missed last weekend, just let you know that we're starting a, a new study in the book of 1 Peter. And uh, the introduction was last weekend. Just gave uh, the pastors last weekend just two verses to get going. We're going to spend actually three weeks in the introduction before we get into the good part of the book. And uh, I thought last week, particularly for Pastor Freddie, those two words, elect exiles, that's all he needed to preach like 45 minutes. And he did. So there you go. Uh, anyway, we are picking up that study, and uh, it's interesting, this book of 1 Peter. There is probably no more relevant book in the New Testament for the time that we're currently living in. And yet this book, uh, at least in my lifetime, is a book that is somewhat neglected. And I can let you know that in, in my very short ministry year, I've never preached through the book of 1 Peter. And that's interesting. It's not that it is not interesting, certainly not that it is not inspired or important, but the question that some people might ask when reading through 1 Peter in a North American context is, is this book relevant? So as we get into it, you'll understand why. Tom Schreiner in his commentary says this, the purpose of the letter, this is why Peter was written, the purpose of this letter is to encourage believers to stand fast while they endure suffering and distress in this present evil age. And so you read that and you go, okay, if that's the purpose of the book, and then you're scanning through the book and you see the word suffering, suffering, suffer, suffers in all its various forms 17 times in these five short chapters, that is indeed the theme of the book. Uh, chapter 4, verse 12, uh, you might just grab this warning there where it says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So if you don't feel like you're suffering, if you're not under fire, then you might wonder, is this book relevant? And I think in large part, that's why in North America, this book has been neglected during our lifetime because we wonder, it might apply to others in other parts of the world, but does it really apply to us? Peter's main theme, obviously, is well understood by millions of people throughout the centuries and millions of people today in other parts of the world. Just not so much North Americans. Uh, Karen Jobes in her commentary says this, uh, wherever Christians are a minority, wherever Christians are a minority, the message of 1 Peter takes on renewed relevance. 1 Peter presents the Christian community as a colony in a strange land, an island of one culture in the midst of another. So most of us have lived in a time and place here in North America where to be a Christian has not carried any significant cost. In fact, for the majority of our lifetime, being a Christian was a good thing. Oh, those good church-going folks. It was nice to have Christians as neighbors or Christians living down the street from you. And in fact, if you think through North American history uh, during our lifetime, the three primary symbols that you know all across North America are certainly the flag that hangs over City Hall and church steeples on nearly every corner as you drive through the villages and towns and cities of North America, and of course, the Golden Arches. Those three things we know in North America. But times, they are changing. 
They are indeed. Uh, last weekend uh, was away at the British Columbia Mennonite Brethren Convention. Our denominations convention and pastors retreat was last weekend. There were about 10 or 12 of us up for that. It was great to be together. It was hosted in Whistler, B.C. because Whistler, B.C. is the, the newest building in the British Columbia family. Uh, just two years ago, they began construction on this right at the beginning of the pandemic and moved in recently, and so it's cool to be in that building. But John Pazook, who was a teaching intern here, and in fact, they're here uh, during this time because they're on a sabbatical, him and his wife, Stephanie, uh, fellowship here at uh, Northview in these days, but they pastor in this little church. And so John shared a bit of the story, the journey of building this building in Whistler. So they have been sitting on a piece of land that was donated like 20 years ago, waiting for the right time, waiting to raise the money. And finally, it all came together just before the beginning of the pandemic. And then they went to the city council to get their permit to build the building. And the first answer was a resounding no. A resounding no. We do not want a church in Whistler. Now, I don't know how much time you've spent in Whistler, but there is no other church in Whistler. There's only this one church, and they've been meeting in rented facilities for 35 years. There was not a single place of worship, not a single church building in that village of Whistler, home to 13,000 year-round residents and millions who visit, of course, around the year. When they began to build, finally they got the permit because the city council finally said, well, just because we're not religious people, we can't ban those religious people from building something. And so when they finally did begin to build, they got threats to burn it down, threats of violence. So they went to the police to say, can you do something about this? And John said it was interesting because they said, no, we can't. Why not? Is this not hate speech? No, it is not hate speech. How can it not be hate speech? Because you're Christian. Because you're Christian was the answer. Christians are the majority culture. So to speak against Christians is not hate speech. You'll remember uh, last summer we watched as the protest took place outside Praxis Church up in Kelowna based on our sexual ethic. And we heard the stories from St. John's Newfoundland, Mile One Mission, our, our partner that we partner with to plant churches on the rock in Newfoundland, and that one of their church plants was kicked out of the building that they rent over this very same issue for hosting that man, uh, that holding to the belief that marriage is one man and one woman for life. So the subject matter of First Peter is becoming more and more relevant to our experience, even here in North America. More and more, we are beginning to feel like strangers in our own land. Now, I, I, I'm sure many of you could share your personal stories of travel. Uh, some of you in this room, even, and here this weekend know what it is like to live as a resident alien. You have literally immigrated from another part of the world and you are adapting to life in Canada as a, a stranger, as a sojourner, or you might feel as an exile here. But certainly all of you can share your stories of traveling uh, to other parts of the world. So about 15, 16 years ago, Carolyn and I had the privilege to be in North India for about three weeks. And it was an amazing, beautiful experience to see this confluence of the cultures, amazing foods from around the world, but primarily spicy Indian food, the religious mosaic of Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims and Christians living side by side in this beautiful, beautiful culture filled with beautiful people. Their clothing was amazing, literally millions of people, and their, their food, of course, was so tasty, but we were clearly outsiders. 
And after about three weeks of eating, it was an authentic tour, so we ate like the Indians eat spicy food for breakfast, lunch, and supper. About three weeks into it, we spotted a pizza hut in Ludiana. Oh my goodness, it was like heaven had come to earth. It tasted so amazing. I remember as a 17-year-old crossing the border to come to Bible school in Canada, crossed on the panhandle of northern Idaho and into uh, southern BC over near Cranbrook, and unbelievable, 100 miles an hour was the speed limit. Learning to buy gas in liters instead of gallons. Learning to speak Canadian. To say roof instead of roof. Produce instead of produce. A instead of hum. It's funny today, uh, some 40 years later, I still get asked once in a while, somebody will say, are you an American? What's even funnier is when we're home visiting family in the States, I have people ask, are you a Canadian? I'm just confused, I guess. But honestly, a lot of our, our dissonance with the culture is really about those things, semantics and language. Uh, you, I, I'm sure you've all seen the Got Milk campaign, right? The, the Dairy Association put together for the last 30 years, since the 90s, we've seen these advertisements on Got Milk. Uh, you may not know, however, that when it first came out in the 90s, it was a, an utter fail in Latin America because the Latins heard Got Milk as, are you lactating? <laughs> Didn't go over that well. <laughs> Or Caleb and Raquel, one of our missionary couples, uh, we just commissioned them just a few months ago, sent them out to northern Thailand. They're, they're literally just now getting settled in. They were in language study that first full year. They're going to be just digging into the Thai language and the Shan language, trying to learn the language of the people that they're with. But they're setting up home, and they sent out a little note this week, and they'd been out, and they're buying the stuff for the house. And they bought some plants and some pots to put those plants in. And Raquel's like, she's trying to talk to the lady to say how nice these pots were, and thank you. And as she walked away, she realized what she had said about the pots was tasty, tasty, tasty. (laughs) So dissonance. But the dissonance in the Roman Empire in the first century was far more than just this. In that Roman world, Caesar was Lord. Caesar was Lord. And to declare anything otherwise, to declare that there was another king, specifically King Jesus, was treasonous. And so to refuse to take a little pinch of incense and to nod your head and to recite the party line, Caesar is Lord, was to lose your status, perhaps to lose your place in society, to lose your job, maybe to be kicked out of your family. And then far more practical, of course, was that the ethic of the Christian community as these new people out of new birth were living in such different ways was in many ways offensive to the culture at large. Uh, The Christian collision with culture, uh, Bruce Wilson says, hits at least four key areas, our civic life, our household life, our marriages, and just the daily controversies of life. And we're going to get to this good stuff over the course of the summer. But in civic life, chapter 2, verse 13, if you've got your Bibles open, says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, that's an interesting passage. Obey the government is basically what that text says. Now, remind yourself this is the Roman Empire. This is the Roman Empire. It is not a constitutional monarchy. It is not a democracy. It's the empire. 
Caesar is Lord, and it may not have been a totalitarian state. He may not have been seen as a dictator, but Caesar was in control of everything. And Peter says to these early Christians, honor those in authority over you. That's going to be a very interesting conversation when we get to that text. Someone else is actually preaching it. But the question is this. Can Christianity flourish under any government system? That's the question. Does it have to be a democracy? Does it have to be a constitutional monarchy? Can Christianity actually flourish under communism, under fascism, under totalitarianism, under the Roman Empire of Caesar? Uh, in the household, of course, we'll come up against this because 30 to 40% of the Roman Empire were slaves. I don't know if you knew that. Slaves different from our chattel slavery here in North America, but slaves nonetheless. 30 to 40% of the citizens of the Roman Empire were slaves, and Christianity is going to turn that on its head in a very subversive way. Marriage comes up. Marriage and family, and in particular, what do you do if you're a Christian woman? You have come to faith in Christ, but your husband doesn't yet believe. Your husband rejects your newfound faith. How do you live in that marriage? A spiritually mixed marriage. And then he goes on to talk to husbands. What do you do with wives in a day when they were little more, sorry to say it, women, but little more than property in that first century? And then finally, there's all the other just flashpoint controversies that just arise. Soft persecution, harassment that comes simply for living out as a follower of Christ. Living a good life is going to get you verbally abused for your good life. And the comparison there is to Noah in his day, that Noah was a righteous man, and yet Noah was mocked, and so we too will face these things. Uh, Peter will also remind us of our calling, and how to live, and how we are called to live out our calling in Christ, and our calling to live as Christians. Uh, first and foremost, the, the book starts, the practical teaching of the book, which is chapter 1, verse 13, through the end of chapter 5. That's the practical teaching. We're just in the introduction right now. But it starts there, and in verse 115, he talks about our calling in Christ. But as he who called you is holy, so you should be holy. The one who has called you. And then if you go to the end of the book, chapter 5, verse 10, and you see it there again. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you. So the practical chunk of the teaching is from 113 to the end of the book. And it is bookended. It opens and closes with this comment, you have been called called to salvation, called to adoption, called to God. But additionally, as you'll see in our study as we get through it, you're called to three actions as well. We're called to speak. Chapter 2, verse 9, if you want a reference, it says there that you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. The one who called you. So we are supposed to speak. We are supposed to praise. We are supposed to witness to the glory of God. We're also called to follow. To follow specifically in the steps of Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 21. It says, just like Jesus suffered and he didn't push back, he didn't revile. So when you're suffering, look to Jesus. Look to his example. Jesus suffered a lot. And so as you suffer, look to his example. And then the third calling is the call to bless. And that's in chapter 3, verse 9. So when people are giving you a hard time, like Jeremiah 29, the exiles in Babylon, 
Plant your gardens, settle down, build houses, give your kids in marriage, and pray for the peace and prosperity of this place, because as this place prospers, you're going to prosper too. So bless those three callings. But before we ever get there, all that great practical stuff, Peter starts off his letter, and that's what we're going to focus on. Literally, we're going to take the next two weeks on this introduction, the first 12 verses. Peter starts off his letter by anchoring us to our identity in Christ. So rather than jumping right in, and I don't know if you're like me, but I just want to jump to the good stuff. So let's forget the introduction. Let's forget the greetings. Let's forget all the setup. Peter, just get to the good stuff. And the good stuff really begins in chapter 1, verse 13, where he says, prepare your minds for action. Get ready. Buckle up. And so rather than just jumping in there, rather than Peter starting his letter by like, okay, people, listen up. Listen up. It's getting really dark out there. The pressure in our culture is building. The fecal matter is ready to hit the rotating cooling device. Things are not looking good over here in Rome. Paul's under house arrest. Nero, our leader, is getting more and more erratic and unpredictable in his decision-making, so buckle up. That's where he should have started, right? But before we get there, he's like, no, let me remind you of who you are in Christ. Let me remind you of your position, and it's significant that Peter does this because, remember, it is Peter. Peter who writes this book. Peter, the disciple that we likely know the most about of all of the 12, and it's significant that Peter does because if there was any leader, any one of the 12, who knew the danger of self-confidence, and a bravado, and a pounding on the chest. It's Peter. Peter. It's funny we call him Peter, because that's not his name. You remind yourself of that? Peter's the nickname. His real name is Simon, or Simeon. And his brother Andrew brings him to Jesus to introduce him to Jesus. And when Jesus meets him, he's like, your name's Simon, but I'm not going to use your name. I'm going to give you a nickname. I'm going to call you Rocky. Because that's what Peter means. Petros or Cephas in the Greek and in the Aramaic, Petrus, Cephas, means rocky or the rock. What was it that Jesus saw on this first meeting with Peter? Did he immediately see his hard-headed stubbornness? Did he see that he was a little thick-skulled? Did he see, on the other hand, the strength of his character? He would be resilient. He would be tenacious. He would go to the wall for Christ. It's interesting, though, that he gives him a name, and it's stuck, that we know him more by his nickname than by his real name. So as you're reading through the New Testament, and you remember, he's given four different names throughout the New Testament. Of course, Simon and Peter. And then sometimes those two are combined, Simon Peter. And then in other places, the Aramaic word Cephas. So if you're reading through the New Testament, you will realize that Peter, Simon Peter, and Cephas are mentioned in the majority of the New Testament books. It's amazing how much press Peter gets more than any of the other disciples. Impetuous Peter. Peter is the one who jumps out of the boat to walk on the water. It was Peter who refused to let Jesus wash his feet. It was Peter who argues with Jesus when Jesus says, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to be crucified. And G uh, Peter starts an argument with him. No, that's, that'll never happen to you, Lord. 
It's Peter who says, even if everybody else denies you, Lord, I will never deny you. It's Peter who in the garden grabs a sword and cuts off the soldier's ear. It's Peter, now listen to this. It's Peter who when Jesus says to him, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Can you imagine Jesus looking you in the eye and saying that to you? Satan has his target on you. He wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to test you. He wants to try you. And what was Peter's response when Jesus said it? Bring it on. Bring it on. I'm ready. And even if I have to die for you, Jesus, his bravado, his pounding of the chest was amazing. Satan wants to sift you like wheat, and he's like, I'm ready. And it was Peter who fails miserably when the heat is turned up. It's Peter who in the garden, along with the others, flees and hides. It's Peter who follows along from a distance, hiding behind the trees as he makes his way into the courtyard where Jesus was being put on trial. It's Jesus who, or Peter rather, who sits around that charcoal fire and denies that he knows Jesus three times. And then he catches his master's eye and he goes out and he weeps bitterly. But you also know that it was Peter that got a special mention from the angel in the garden on the morning of the resurrection. When the women came to the tomb, the angel said to them, go and tell the disciples and Peter. Interesting. Was Peter not one of the disciples? Go tell the disciples. Go tell the 12 or the 11 and tell Peter. Tell him I'll meet up with him in Galilee. It was Peter that Jesus restored three times again around a charcoal fire. It's an interesting connection. He denies Jesus at a charcoal fire in the courtyard three times. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And then around another charcoal fire at the end of John, they're cooking fish on the beach and Jesus comes. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Three denials, three restorations. And Tom Schreiner says this, this fall, this fall breaks the neck of Peter's self-confidence. And he learns not only what he is and what he can do, but he also learns as never before what his master is. Forgiving, compassionate, restorer, and reconciler. You see, if anybody knew the folly of facing trials in your own strength, it is Peter. And so instead of jumping right down to chapter 1, verse 13, prepare for action. He's like, we got some foundational work to do here. We got some important things to set straight. Who you are in Christ matters. And so the big idea, if you want to just take one thought with you, is this, that before you face a trial, you better get your eyes on Jesus. That's basically what Peter says in this first chunk of scripture, this text, the source of our joy, the source of our strength, that before you face a trial, get your eyes on Jesus. 
We face our trials not in our own strength. We face our trials that come to us with resilience, not with a stern-faced resolve just to suck it up, but we face it with joy because we see past the trial to the outcome. And so before Peter calls us to action, he reminds us who we are in Christ. So finally, we're 23 minutes into this, baby. We are now to our text. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter opens this book on suffering with praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is not may God bless us, but it's may we bless him. May we glorify, may we praise, may we eulogize him. The, the word in Greek is literally an English word, or the other way around, it's English from the Greek. Eulogize, which typically happens at a funeral. When we sing the praise of that person, we eulogize them. And this word here is eulogize the Lord. Sing his praise. May he be exalted. May he be lifted up. May he be made much of in your life. So in other words, Peter starts with praise. If you're going to suffer under this pagan government... Rather than whining and complaining about the culture around you and the pressure and the heat that's getting turned up, start by recentering your life on what really matters. And so Peter starts with a shout of praise. Blessed be our God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above you, heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The doxology, which is a study in praise, if you will. A study in praise. Why? Well, because of what he's done. So if you read on in that sentence, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. The mercy of God is the foundation for our joy. The mercy of God is the foundation for our joy. Now, you need to know that the concept of the new birth is central to Christianity. The concept of a new birth is right at the center. It is right at the heart of Christianity. The idea that you must start over. That I must start over. That every sinner who has been living their life in rebellion against the Lord with a, a sin-blackened heart must have a new beginning. New passions, new focus, new heart. That the old dead way of living has to be replaced. And so the most famous conversation that Jesus has where he uses this phrase is with a religious leader named Nick. And Nick comes to him in John chapter 3 under the cover of darkness to ask him some questions. And Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, there's that phrase, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. That's an interesting verse right there. We could stop. It's Jesus talking. It's red letters in some of your Bibles. So it's important, right? Actually, it's all important. Thank you. But Jesus says, unless you're born again, you don't get into the kingdom. That's an important question. I'd have to ask you, have you been born again? Every single one of us has to answer that question because if Jesus says you don't get into the kingdom unless you've been born again, it's a very important question, obviously. Now, he goes on to say to Nicodemus, because Nicodemus is like, what do you mean? I can't get back inside my mother's womb. It's quite interesting that even in the first century, they knew where babies came from. 
and they knew how babies were made. He says, I can't get back into my mother's womb. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. But you got it right. You do understand that there is a baby in the woman's womb. It says it right there in John chapter 3 that a woman carries a child. They understood that in the first century. Is that not amazing? We need to understand this in our day. That a woman carries a child. And if you aren't following with me, you will know that that statement is politically incorrect today. We no longer speak of a woman carrying a child. We speak of a pregnant person and a fetus. Except, God bless him, that Joe Biden made a slip this week and acknowledged that the Supreme Court debate was whether a woman had the right to abort her, and he said the word, child. Acknowledging that that little lump, that embryo, that fetus, that lump of whatever it might be is actually what they even knew in the first century, a child. But I digress. He goes on then to say, Nick, you need to know this. That God loved you so much. The most famous text in the New Testament that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So John 3.16 is really well known. But you need to know the rest of the context because it's very important. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's important. God so loved the world, he gave his son that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. And he did not send the son to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But now listen to this next phrase, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. That's a very, very important phrase because what Jesus is saying is that the world is standing under condemnation. That Jesus didn't come to bring condemnation. The world was already condemned. The world was like a house burning down, a, a, a thing that needed to be bulldozed. And Jesus came into the mess of our lives into a condemned world to bring us life and to bring us to God. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. you got to be born again, Nicodemus. And Peter grabs that thought of a new birth and he says its source, the source of the new birth, is the mercy of God. Because of his great mercy, we have been born again. That we, you and I, are the object and the subject of God's great love, his mercy, his grace. That God would do for us something that we cannot do for ourselves. Amen? It's the heart of the gospel. That Jesus did what you and I cannot do. You need to understand the terms justice and grace and mercy. They are simple, and yet they are profound. Justice is I get what I deserve. We understand it. I break the law, I pay a penalty. I pay a fine, I might go to prison. If I do something wrong, I should pay for it. There's something about the human heart. Every time you say, it's not right, it's not fair, it shouldn't be that way, you are talking about justice that is embedded on your heart, that wrongs should be paid for. 
Mercy is I don't get what I deserve. And, and that's what most of us want. We don't want justice, actually. We want mercy, right? I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to pay the fine. I want to be let off. And grace is I get what I don't deserve. God's unmerited favor, he gives me a gift. Let, let me just put it in a very simple illustration. So uh, you're on the way to uh, a weekend service. And just imagine, this would never, ever happen, but just imagine that you're running a little late. As if it would ever happen that people would get to church late, ever. But you're running a little late and you're driving a little fast. And the blue and red lights go off behind you and you know, you look at the speedometer, you know you've been caught, you have broken the law, and you know that when the officer comes to your window, you are guilty. And so justice demands that you pay for it. And so he would have every right, he or she, the officer, to write you a ticket. But what you're hoping for in that moment is not justice, but mercy. You are hoping that your officer also attends Northview Church <laughs> and would say to you, oh, I was at the Saturday service or I was at the Sunday service. And oh, I understand you're running a little late. I mean, a few of us run late once in a while. I'm going to let you off. And you go, thank God there is a God in heaven. Mercy. But on the other hand, justice should prevail. And the officer, because he goes to Northview, would know that he has to uphold the law, needs to give you a ticket, needs to write the fine, $240 million. <laughs> and then he puts away his ticket book and he pulls out his own personal checkbook and writes you a check for that amount. That's grace. Justice, I get what I deserve. Mercy, I don't get what I deserve. And grace, I get what I don't deserve. That God in his mercy, his compassion toward us does not give us what we deserve. Instead, he lavishes his great love upon us. He sends his son into a condemned world. And so this is critical as we get into this book, that when it feels like the world is burning down around us, when it feels like our culture is unraveling, remember who you are in Christ, that you were born again by his initiative, by his action, by his mercy, and then born again into three things. First Peter 3. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. You have been born, he's caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's grace are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Three things given to us at the new birth. A living hope, a guaranteed inheritance, and a secure salvation. In your new birth, these three things, they are incredibly rich metaphors. You could preach messages just on each one of those phrases. A sure and living hope because we follow a living and risen Lord. There is no tomb where we go to see Jesus' bones. He is alive and well. Amen. He is seated at the Father's right hand and he gives us a sure and living hope. We, it's an inheritance, not like an earthly inheritance, which is so uncertain. So if we could tell our stories around this room, some of you have had the privilege of inheriting something from your folks or your grandparents and the majority of you didn't inherit anything. And we know that earthly inheritance are uncertain. We don't know whether there will be anything for us at the end of the generation ahead of us. We might hope it, but there may be nothing. But Jesus says this inheritance is imperishable. 
It is undefiled, it is unfading, and it is kept for you, it is guarded for you. The Lord is watching over your inheritance. It is, in other words, a very secure salvation. A salvation yet to be revealed, our final glorified state before the Father. So just press pause there for a moment. Stop the sermon clock. The New Testament talks about salvation in three different ways. Past, present, and future. So as you're reading the New Testament, you will come to passages where it says you have been saved. Past tense. Signed, sealed, delivered, finished. You were saved. In the finished work of Christ, everything that needed to be accomplished was accomplished. It was done. You were saved. Past tense. You will also read, as you're reading through the New Testament, that you are being saved. Present tense. That the work of the Holy Spirit continues to mold you and shape you and sanctify you into the likeness of Christ. And then you will also read that we will be saved. We've been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. That one day he is guarding, he is keeping, guaranteed in Christ that we will stand before him on that day and we will be glorified. So you've got these big words, justified, sanctified, and glorified. And you're like, nobody in my neighborhood uses words like that. I know, that's why we use them in church. And it's important that you understand what these words are. Justification, sanctification, glorification, because they are given to us in Christ. You were saved. You were justified in Jesus. You are being sanctified by the work of the Spirit. And one day you will be glorified. You're going to get changed. Bless God, you're going to get changed. You look like a mess. You're going to have a new body. So praise be to God. He has set us apart for this salvation. And it's one of the key reasons that the people of God have always been a singing people. Because praise should be the most natural thing that flows from our lips. Let me ask you a question. Let me especially men ask you a question. When did you stop singing? When did you stop singing? Because little kids love to scream and run and sing and dance and create and draw. We love it when they're running through the foyer. When they bump into us and we spill our coffee, we don't even care because it's so wonderful. We love it. Pablo Picasso said this, all children are artists. The problem is how to remain an artist once we grow up. I read this study once a study of childhood development that said in kindergarten, if the teacher asks those children, which one of you is a great artist and a great singer, that 100% of the hands go in the air in kindergarten. But track those kids, and by the time they get to grade three or four, and the same question, how many of you are great artists or singers, only about 50% now raise their hands. And by the time they get to middle school, it's only 10 to 15% are willing to raise their hand. Let me ask you, when did you stop singing? I heard this line, in fact, I think there's a book by this title, Mennonite Girls Can Cook. Maybe that's true, I don't know, maybe it's not. Can every Mennonite girl cook? What about Mennonite boys, can they cook? Maybe it's true, maybe it's not true, but I will tell you one thing that is certainly true. God's kids sing. The mercy of God is foundational to our joy. And so Peter doesn't stop here. He goes on to say that the mercy of God is also the foundation for our resilience. And so if you read the rest of our text for today, verse 6 to 9, 
In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, though now you have not seen him, you love him. Though now you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In this, he says, you rejoice. In what? In everything that we've talked about. Everything that's gone before this, in our new birth, our living hope, our guaranteed inheritance, our secure salvation, in this we rejoice. And then he gives us three even those. Even though for a short while you will suffer, verse 6, and suffering will be a key topic throughout this book. Uh, We're going to suffer together through the summer. Verse 8, that even though we did not see him, Peter was an eyewitness, but his readers had not seen Jesus. And even though we don't see him today, we rejoice. And even though you have not seen him or don't see him twice, we believe, we trust, and we rejoice. So think back to Thomas after Jesus' resurrection. Thomas wanted to put his hand on the side and in his hands. And Jesus said to him, you've touched me. And he says, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us, my friends. But the day is coming when we're going to see him face to face. 1 John 3, see what kind of love the Father's given us that we should be called children of God? Beloved, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Revelation 21 and 22, the new heavens and the new earth, and the city of Jerusalem comes down from heaven. It's established on earth. We spend eternity on the new earth. And one of the key promises in that final chapter, the last book of the New Testament, Revelation 20. 2, verse 4, they will see his face. No masks in heaven, praise God. The hope of standing face to face with the one who brought us, who bought us with his own precious blood, has been and remains the solid hope and strength for believers through the century. So we've been singing this song lately, uh, Phil Wickham's Hymn of Heaven. How I long to breathe the air of heaven, where pain is gone and mercy fills the streets. To look upon the one who bled to save me and walk with him through all eternity. There will be a day when we bow before him. There will be a day when death will be no more. No more standing face to face with he who died and rose again. Holy, holy is Lord. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's interesting how when we sing that hymn, the volume level swells. And hands go up in hope and in adoration. So Tom Schreiner said this, the purpose of the letter is to encourage believers to stand fast while they endure suffering and distress in the present evil age. And before Peter gets to the good stuff, before he challenges us to step up and to prepare our minds for action, he takes the strategies to engage our culture. He reminds us who we are in Christ who we are because of God's great mercy. And there's going to be a ton of really incredibly practical and relevant applications in this study. It's going to be a great, I think it's 16 weeks. But this is enough for today. That mercy is the foundation of our joy. 
and that mercy is the foundation of our resilience. You know, every time we sing that hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, we sing a line like this, Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. That is precisely the theme of 1 Peter. So I need to ask you a simple question. As you look at the craziness of the world around us and as you listen to the nightly news, as you listen to the reports coming out of Ottawa or Washington, D.C. or Moscow, is your first response to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Because it should be. Because the bigger the picture we have of God, the smaller the trials will appear. And the greater we understand our secure salvation, the greater will be our resilience. And the greater our focus on our future living hope, the greater our ability to withstand the winds of culture that are going to blow up against us. And so Peter says, in essence, dear ones, dear ones, scattered all around the globe, dispersed, the dispersion, like salt and light, aliens and strangers, living here but not really belonging here. Embrace your identity in Christ. Embrace your pilgrim status. Don't be surprised that you live with a level of dissonance. It's okay. You were never supposed to feel at home here because this world is not your home. This world is going to be remade and renewed and restored. And while we're here, for this short little while, we should live such good lives that people will look at us and wonder, what is up with those folks? That the darker the days get, the brighter the light of the gospel community shines. So just two questions remain. Number one, have you embraced what Jesus accomplished for you? That simple question, have you been born again? Have you started over? Have you taken your life to Jesus Christ and said, I'm done with the mess, I'm done with my old dead way of living, I'm done with this darkened, hardened heart, I'm ready to turn away from it, I've recognized the mess that I'm in, and I'm ready to lay it down, and I'm ready to pick up the life I have in Christ. Have you done that? By faith in the finished work of Christ. It's as simple as saying, yes, Lord, I receive it. I believe it, and I receive it. Secondly, for those of you, the majority of you will say, yeah, I've done that. Are you living out the joy and the resilience of that calling? That God's mercy is our foundation, our calling is secure, and our eyes are lifted up. In other words, before you ever face the trial, you get your eyes on Jesus. Are you living like that? When you stand with me, I want to pray for you. The team's going to come and lead us in a great song. So, Father, I pray for the men and women listening to this message. Pray for those at each one of our campuses and for those here at Downs. Father, you know how uh, we want to run ahead. It's just in human nature, like get to the good stuff, get to the controversial stuff, get to the challenging stuff in this book, and it's filled with it. But for some reason, Peter took the time to set a foundation first and to remind us of who we are, Jesus, through your finished work, that God's mercy has been poured out on us that it was not God's justice. Jesus, you stepped in. You took God's just payment on yourself. You absorbed our penalty as our substitute. And then you walked away from the tomb fully alive that we might have a living hope. And so, Lord, I pray for the men and women who are listening to this message. I pray, number one, for those who have not been born again, that spirit, that you would ignite within them right now a hunger and a thirst to know you. 
and that they would turn their life to you, that they would simply say, yes, I believe it and I receive it. And Father, for the majority in our church family who would say, yeah, I did that years ago, may you get it from their head to their heart, Lord. May we walk in joy and may we walk in resilience by your spirit. We ask that blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.